Well, sometimes appearances can be deceiving. So take these pictures, for example. Uh, in this first one, it looks like the rabbit on the right has hit the jackpot. Uh, looks like he's got a huge carrot, but the other rabbit, well, he's only got a small one. But appearances, they can be deceiving. <laughs> the rabbit on the left might need a bit of help getting his carrot out. Or have you ever been in an Ames room? Uh, our family went on one. We went to a uh, Bendigo one time. An Ames room is designed to distort the apparent size of people. So in this photo, the man and the girl are actually roughly the same size. Appearances can be deceiving. And the same can be said for Christmas. And I don't just mean with all the commercialisation of Christmas, you know, it can be hard to see what Christmas is really about. I mean with the first Christmas. Even at the moment of Jesus' birth, it was hard to tell what it was all about. The way Christ was born was so humble and so lowly that it veiled the significance of it all. Hard to tell what was really going on. Appearances can be deceiving. But it's the genius of God that it was like this. Because the manner of Jesus' birth takes us to the very heart of who Jesus is. The way Jesus was born, it's a little snapshot of his life and even unto his death. Because here we're introduced to the Lord and King, Christ Jesus, who stooped down in humility for our sake. It began with his birth. He carried this humility into his life. It climaxed in his death. And so the birth of Christ calls on us to celebrate that our great God and King humbled himself for us. And so we're to be the people who marvel and who wonder at him and also follow him in his humility. But look, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's have a look at chapter 2. Uh, in chapter 1, we've been given this great big drum roll, anticipating the coming of the king. We've had Gabriel and Mary and Zechariah, and they've all been filling the air with joy and wonder at the coming of the Christ. And in chapter 2, Luke joins the fanfare. In his account of the actual birth of the king, Luke rings the royal bells. So from verse 1, Luke speaks of royal people making royal announcements. Have a look, chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. It's a very impressive beginning to the chapter. Here we have the most powerful ruler in the world, Caesar Augustus, the royal emperor, issuing a royal decree. And this royal decree from on high means that everyone is affected, as is seen in verse 3. Verse 3. And everyone went to his own town to register. You see, from on high this decree has come. Caesar Augustus has spoken. And so all the people need to go to their own towns for the census. Now, from verse 4, Luke zeroes in on one particular family caught up in it all. But as he does, Luke continues to sound the royal bells. Because from verse 4, the action revolves around a royal family going to a royal town. See if you can notice the royal references in verse 4. Verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. And so here we have Joseph, and we're told that he's heading to Bethlehem, the town of David. 
There's our first royal reference in verse 4, because the David mentioned here is King David, Israel's greatest king. And why is Joseph going to Bethlehem, the town of David? Why is that Joseph's own town? Because we're told in verse 4, it's because Joseph's got blue blood. Joseph's going to the town of David because he's from the house and line of David. Joseph's got royal blood in him. And so in verse 4, we have a mention of a royal town, a double mention of the royal king associated with that royal town, and the royal bells just keep on ringing into verse 5. Verse 5. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. This child is the royal child we've been hearing about all through chapter 1. The angel Gabriel said that Mary would give birth to the new king and here we're told that the child is on the way. And then finally in verse 6 we have the royal announcement of the birth of the king. Joseph and Mary's firstborn, a son. Verse 6. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Now, having a son in a royal family was important. Uh, Sons were the ones who took the throne, the firstborn sons to be exact. And in Luke's announcement of this royal birth, even though we already know that Mary hasn't had any children yet, Luke says that when the time came for her baby to be born, Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. It's a grand moment. In these opening verses of chapter 2, we've got royal decrees from a royal emperor. We have a royal town of the greatest royalty that Israel had ever known with a royal family from the royal line of King David and the royal announcement of a firstborn, a son. And then on top of all this, of course, is the weight of expectation that we've had from Luke chapter 1. We've had Gabriel declare that Mary's boy will be the, the king of Israel, but that he won't just rule Israel. He's going to rule the world and he's going to rule forever. This is royalty on steroids. But he's not just going to rule. This king's going to save. He's going to conquer his enemies, save his people, and wonderfully rule over them in justice and in peace. With Mary's firstborn son, we have the arrival of the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. End of verse 7. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was... No room for them in the inn. She did what? Has she no sense of occasion? No sense of dignity? Has Mary no sense at all? She just put the royal, divinely appointed, newborn king in an animal feeding trough. Is this really a royal birth? I mean, where's the crib? Where's the midwives? Where's the baby's blanket in royal purple? Where's the servants? Where's the comfy chairs and the warm bed? What's all this about a manger? A feeding trough for animals. She she did what? You used my toothbrush to clean the toilet? You did what? You put the newborn king of the world in a feeding trough? You did what? The end of verse 7 is meant to jar us. It's meant to grate against everything we've expected. Given chapter 1 and those first few verses of chapter 2, with the birth of Jesus, we're expecting a palace with all the bells and whistles, but no. Jesus, the almighty king, is born and placed in a feeding trough. It doesn't look like a royal birth, but we know it is. We've been told over and over again by Luke that Jesus is the one. Luke doesn't want us to be fooled by appearances. Jesus was laid in a manger, yes, but he's still 
the King of Kings. And it's part of the genius of God that Christ Jesus would be born in such humble circumstances because here in his birth, right from the start, we're taken to the heart of who Jesus is. Yes, he's the glorious, majestic, almighty king of all the world. Jesus Christ is Lord. But he came to rule through humility. It's hinted at here in his birth, and we see it most fully in his coronation. For just as Luke records the birth of the king, he also gives us an account of Christ's coronation. And just as Christ's birth was lowly and humble, well, you should see his coronation. Turn across with me, please, to Luke 23. It's the second last chapter of Luke. We're drawing very near to the end of Jesus' life. And Luke wants us to see here Jesus crowned as king. It's an ugly crown. It's a crown of thorns. It's an ugly throne. It's a wooden cross. But in the death of Christ, Luke wants us to see Christ's royal coronation. So chapter 23, verse 1. Uh, The Jewish leaders have just condemned Jesus as worthy of death. They drag him off to Pilate. And as I read from chapter 23, look for how Luke keeps telling us from the lips of so many people that here Jesus is king. Chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. So in the run-up to Christ's death, the Jewish leaders accuse Jesus of being the king. Pilate asks Jesus if he's the king And Jesus admits to being the king. Skip down to verse 35. It continues. At this stage, Jesus has been crucified. He's nailed to the cross. And again, people just keep calling Jesus the king or the Christ, which just means king. Verse 35. The people stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. You see, as Jesus is crucified and dying, Luke records all these different people calling Jesus king. Now, there would have been lots of things said and done at the time, but Luke wants us to hear the voices shouting that Jesus is king. He wants us to read the written notice above his head, which read, This is the king of the Jews. Luke wants us to know that here in his death, Jesus is king. I don't know if it's normal for a newly crowned king to make a speech at his own coronation. Jesus did. And in the precious few words we have of Jesus at his death, we hear Christ himself declare that he is the king. He speaks of his kingdom being vast and great, mightier than even death itself. So come down to verse 42 with me. 
One of the criminals crucified with Jesus has a request for him, and in his answer, Jesus says that his authority as king is even over death and sin. Verse 42. Then he, that's the criminal, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And look at both at sorry, at best, both these men are, are hours from death. This is a ridiculous conversation at one level. I mean, what sort of kingdom can Jesus offer the man to be a part of? It's the kingdom that even death can't touch. It's the kingdom of paradise, eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. It's the eternal kingdom of eternal salvation ushered in by King Jesus at his coronation, at his death. Now look, I'm the first to admit that Jesus doesn't look much like the king of all the world at his crucifixion, uh, naked, bleeding, humiliated, impaled and dying. But appearances can be deceiving. To some eyes, he might look like a beaten, crushed man. But on that cross, on that cross, the Lord Jesus began his kingly rule. Because in his death, he took our sin. So that in his death, we're saved from the wrath of God. In his death, we find forgiveness. We find the gateway to eternal life. In his death, Christ brings salvation, conquering our enemies in might and power, bringing us to God. In Christ's death, we see a king so powerful that he rules even beyond the grave, an eternal king with eternal salvation. This is Christ. This is Christianity. Our king come to rule through humility, and it's worth celebrating. So friends, this Christmas, let's celebrate. Let's not be fooled by appearances, not fooled by the humble birth of Jesus, not fooled by his even more humble coronation. Instead, let's celebrate the King who in humility came for us at Christmas because this is who he is and this is what he came to do, to save us from sins, to wash us clean, to bring us back to God. Christ came in humility from the manger to the cross, Christ came in humility. And he did it for us. So he's worth celebrating, don't you reckon? So this Christmas, as we eat nice food and we share presents and we enjoy good time, let's do these things to celebrate Jesus. Deliberately, consciously, let's celebrate Christ. Like we do at a wedding reception, you know where we enjoy good times and good food to celebrate the newlyweds? Well, this Christmas, let's enjoy good times and good food to celebrate Jesus, remembering him and speaking of him and singing of him and praising him and celebrating our wonderful king. But for some, this is going to be easier than for others, isn't it? Because for some of us, Christmas can be at best a mixed time of year, can't it? In amongst all the good cheer there can lurk darkness and sadness. Because, sure, Christmas brings the family together, but your family always fights. Or maybe for you, Christmas just highlights the fact that a loved one isn't here anymore. Or maybe right now you're simply going through a real rough patch in life, and I mean a real rough patch. And for you, it just feels impossible for you to share in the Christmas spirit. 
You might have ongoing struggles in life and Christmas doesn't take them away. Maybe for you this Christmas, it's just more trouble than it's worth. For some of us, the idea of celebrating, it's a long way from our hearts. And the sadness that many of us will feel at this time of year, as real as it is, none of it changes the fact that Christ did come. And he came for us. In a humble birth, laid in a manger, in a humiliating death, nailed to a cross, Christ Jesus, he came. And he came for us. And not the struggles of life, not even death itself can change this. And so Jesus is celebrating, come what may. We can have joy even in the midst of pain. And the humility of Christ's death reminds us that our lives, they're going to be humble as well. We are, after all, aren't we? Followers of Jesus. And so if his life was characterised by lowliness and struggle and sacrifice and humility, then as his followers, our lives are going to be like that too. And so our lives may appear insignificant as we follow our humble Lord. Our lives may appear small as we sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others. Our lives may appear weak as we endure ridicule when telling others of Jesus. As we consistently give up our time and energy to serve others. As we bear the troubles and the burdens of this life. As we let go of ambitions and prestige and security and money. As we lose our lives for the sake of Christ, our lives can appear insignificant and weak. But friends, appearances can be deceiving, can't they? Because we're the followers of Christ Jesus. He's the one who God raised from the dead. The Lord Jesus sits right now at God's right hand and he's ruling in all power and in all authority. Christ, he has the name that is above every name. Before him every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he really is Lord. And so to be his followers, to be his servants... Oh, brothers and sisters, there's nothing better, is there? There's nothing more significant. There is nothing more lasting. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, he came. And he came for us in humble birth, in humiliating death. He came for us. And so in might and glory and in power, he now reigns over us. And in wonder and in splendor and in delight, he will come for us. And so we praise the Lord. We give thanks to the Lord. Because his love endures forever. Friends, let's pray. That you sent your son in humility. Thank you that he was placed in a manger. Father, thank you most of all that he was obedient to death even death on a cross. And Father, thank you that you have raised him up and he is exalted. He is King and Lord of all. And Father, thank you that you've made us his followers and you've saved us and washed us clean by his death for us. And so, Father, we pray that we would be genuine followers of Christ Jesus, walking in his humble footsteps. Father, help us not to be deceived by appearances but to know in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord and so to serve him with everything we have as we wait for him to gloriously return for us.
Father, we praise you for your Son. Amen.